The Canucks road trip continues in Chicago today, and so does the trade talk around the team. It is the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host as always, Canucks insider Thomas Trance, who also does a bang-up job. Just fantastic work, Trance, oh, covering the team so at The Athletic. I'm feeling charitable on a, on a <laughs> yeah, Monday morning. Very charitable. Look, Undeservedly hey, it charitable. Was, it was a great sports weekend. It was. Right? It was awesome. With the exception of the Canucks game on Saturday, a very entertaining sports weekend. <laughs> but we'll get into that uh, in just blacked a that second. Out. They played? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it might be hard to remember, but they did play a game. <laughs> Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And, yeah, I mentioned that game on Calgary. I mean, to say the least... Not the most entertaining or compelling affair that we have seen these Canucks play this season. There, there's been let's, some stinkers. Let's, let's, there's been some stinkers this Canucks season. Let's be real. Aside from Thatcher Demko, that was a brutal performance. It was tough. Oh, and the penalty kill. The penalty kill was yep. good. So kudos to the Canucks PK and Thatcher Demko being in rhythm somehow right away, despite being peppered with shots. That was one of the worst performances I've seen, certainly from this team all season. But But I think maybe... Across the league, I think you'd struggle to find uh, five worse performances from a team than than what the Canucks put in on Saturday. Yeah, it was hard to watch. And they, hey, because of Thatcher Demko, because goaltending continues to be a major strength, basically no matter who's in the crease at this point for the yep. Canucks, they end up getting a point against Calgary. But at this point of the season, and given what happened in the first 25 games of the season for the Vancouver Canucks, okay, yeah, you salvage a point, but Calgary gets two, and... You know, at the beginning of last week, Drancer, we looked ahead to those three games against Edmonton, against Winnipeg, against Calgary. And we talked about the opportunity, but also the importance of making up ground against those teams that are all ahead of you in the standings that you probably need to catch if you're going to make the playoff chase a reality. And, okay, four points out of the three games, in a sense, that's not bad, but you didn't make up ground on Edmonton. You didn't make up ground on Calgary because of the way you accrued those points. And you didn't lose in regulation. So you, you're not flatlining, right? No one's bringing no. out the, um, you know, you're, you're, you're not at the point of needing resuscitation, right? But you remain in critical condition, right? And, and this is sort of where the Canucks are, not just the, after this week, not just coming out of a week against a trio of Canadian teams they're chasing in which, you know, they did get four points from these six games, although they also gave away four points, from the six games to yep. teams ahead of them in the standings. So that's essentially a wash, right? It's like, that's a wash. And and the problem with that is you're not gaining. Yeah. And the Canucks have, all these teams have game in, games in hand on the Canucks. Um, all of these teams are ahead of the Canucks by actual points. Uh, maybe the Jets aren't anymore, but they have three games in hand. And this is kind of the wider story of what the Canucks have done since they returned to action following the Christmas COVID pause, right? The Omicron Christmas pause. I don't know how, I don't think we've agreed on what we're calling that little blip in the NHL schedule, but that blip is a good word. Yeah. yeah. The blip. (laughs) Um, Since the blip, isn't that a Marvel term? That is the Marvel. I believe that's what they they call, anyways, we don't need to go down that road. But yes, you're right. Since the entire NHL turned into dust (laughs) and it was very emotional, uh, the Canucks have played 13 games. Okay. Canucks have played 13 games, five, four, and four. So there's two ways to spin that. They've won five of four games, or five, five of, 13 of 13 games, or they've got points from nine of 13 games. But the fundamental truth of the matter is that they're two points over 500. 
Two points over 500, over 13 games. When you fall as far back as the Canucks did, right, that doesn't get it done. You need to be gaining. Yeah. And they failed to do that. Now, there's so much context that needs to be accounted for, right? Brock Besser missed the first stretch of those games because of COVID. Uh, then later down in the stretch, you get to Horvat and Halak and then Garland and then Miller and then Demko. Uh, the rise of Spencer Martin. I mean, they've been through the ringer and and they've dealt with through this stretch unequal protocols as they apply to the return of their players as a result of the border. And so that they've stayed afloat deserves, you know, a, a prominent bit of notice. But we also shouldn't be too polite about it, right? They they didn't they couldn't afford this stretch and they've had it. And they've had it despite nine fifty ish goaltending, second best five on five goaltending in the NHL over the course of this stretch. And they failed to capitalize on it. Like, when you get the second best goaltending in the league for a stretch of 13 games, you need to be way better than two points yeah. over 500. And if you're not, you're not good enough. Now, again, I'm accounting for the context of the player absences, but at some point it gets late. And why are you hearing this trade talk? Why are you hearing this speculation? Why are you hearing these credible reports about a variety of really good Canucks players being on the block? It's because the attachment that we've had in this market, the Arguments that we've had in this market about this team, the streak that came after the after Boudreaux was hired, right? It's all well and good, but for Rutherford and Alvin and the, and the Canucks' new key decision makers, they don't have skin in the game on that. They have skin in the game on getting this team to a better spot than it's at now, right? And, and where are the Canucks now? Jamie, as a result of getting three points from their last two games, they have, they have passed... The Detroit Red Wings and the Columbus Blue Jackets and moved into 21st in the NHL yep. in point percentage. The Red Wings and the Blue Jackets are actively rebuilding. They've been eliminated from playoff contention in the East for months. Months. Like, it's it's not good enough, and it's why the conversation's trending in the direction it's trending. All of which sets up two really important games, Chicago and Nashville. That'll bring the Canucks to 15 games played since the pause. I, I mean, it fe- tonight especially feels like a really vital one for... Well, especially against Chicago, against one of the teams in the Western Conference below you well, in points percentage. And because winning in Nashville tomorrow night, even though you've got Demko going there, that's a tough task really tough. On, on the second leg of a back Third and four nights on the road, all of that. Uh, so you need, you need tonight... And and look, this 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 group of players, they're running out of runway. Not, that, just to make, not just to make a push to make the playoffs, but to make a push to convince management to keep them together. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And to to steal a catchphrase from uh, our 650 colleague, Satyar Shah, two things can be true at the same time, right? And one is that over the last 13 games, given all of the adversity the team has faced, they do deserve credit for keeping their head above water, right? For 100%. treading water in that stretch. That is absolutely true. It is an impressive bit of work and and bit of character and all of that from the team. But what can also be true is that because of the hole they dug themselves early in the season, their performance over these 13 games is not good enough to really keep that playoff dream alive, right? And again, because, as as you said, they're running out of runway, they const every week. Bruce Boudreaux talked about this at the beginning of his tenure, right? Win the week. They haven't been winning enough weeks recently, and that's what they needed to do to get back into this playoff They haven't playoff been race. losing them. They've just kind of been tying They've them. They've been drawing them. Yeah. And I thought Bruce Boudreaux actually summed it up really well uh, today when he was talking to the media ahead of the Chicago game. He was asked about that game on, 
on Saturday and kind of how how they handled it internally. And one of the things he said was, look, everyone had an off day. The thing is, we just can't afford to have those anymore, right? We, we dug ourselves too big a hole. Yeah, off days happen, but we kind of can't actually have them happen, even though that's a thing that happens sometimes. And I think that puts a pretty good bow on it, right? It's they need, even after that 8-0-1 stretch, they needed to keep consistently gaining, and they haven't done that. Now, look, it's not over yet. There's still chances to go on another run to to lessen that gap between them and the other teams they're chasing in the Western Conference. But every game where that doesn't start, right? And, hey, it could have started after that Winnipeg 5-1 win if you pay it off with another win, a regulation win against Calgary. But every game where that run is delayed it, it's it's a significant blow to their playoff chances and again out it, of time. it throws more fuel on the fire of the trade conversation and I mean realistically the game was not very entertaining probably the thing the Canucks fans are still talking and thinking about the most to come out of Saturday night was Elliot Friedman's reporting during the intermission that hey the Canucks are taking calls not just on JT Miller but some other forwards as well including Connor Garland and I wanted to play this, so that was Saturday night that Friedman had a quick report on it. He, was, of course, was on with uh, Jeff Merrick earlier today on the Jeff Merrick Show. Every day he joins Jeff Merrick right off the top, 9.05 here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, and it was interesting because Jeff Merrick didn't tee him up specifically to talk about the Vancouver Canucks. He just kind of said, what are you keeping an eye on around the NHL this week? And the first thing Friedman talked about was the Vancouver Canucks, the trade talks surrounding the team. Here's what he had to say. I mean, Vancouver, I think, is one. Uh, you know, Jim Rutherford, you know, he stuck to his word. He said, I'm, I'm not going to go crazy. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to collect information. And then I'll start thinking about acting. And if I remember correctly, and all the Vancouver people will tell me if I'm wrong, uh, he said, I'll probably start looking at things at the end of January. Well, I look at the calendar right now. It's the last day of January. And word yeah. is starting to get out that Rutherford's starting to put his blocks in play here. And, you know, it, it's going to be interesting. Uh, like, I, I think he wants to create cap room, and I I think he's looking at some of his forwards and seeing, you know, exactly what is going we're going to do here. And obviously number one on everybody's list is JT Miller, and if that's the way he wants to go, there's a lot of interest in Miller. And, you know, I think he'll have some opportunity to do some things there if he wants. But – I don't necessarily think it's it's only him. I think he's got a few of his other forwards out there. He's at least testing the market on what's his value, where are we going with here. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, obviously I mentioned Garland the other night. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, look, you're out in Vancouver world. You've heard all the names. I mean, I'm yeah. sure he's, he's asking, he's, he's checking in. What do you think of Besser? What do you think of Pearson? Like, uh, you know, what do you think of Dickinson? And that doesn't mean all these guys are going everywhere, but I think what he's doing now is he's figuring out the market. And, you know, the, the interesting one that uh, I mentioned is Garland because they just got him. And usually you don't see that happen. But I've just heard it's not an impossibility, and I think there are teams out there that like Garland, and what they like about him is that he's signed. Um, and, you know, if you were to trade for him for argument's sake, you have him for a while. And that appeals to people as the number you can handle, and you can play with good players. And I, I just think that uh, – so, I, like, I think that's going to be one. Miller, like, he's – notwithstanding what happened at the end of overtime – He's a, he's a, he's the kind of guy you want down 
the stretch in the playoffs. He's he's a nasty piece of work, and you like that at that time of year. Obvious. The mm-hmm. I, I think the Garland one's going to be interesting. That is Elliot Friedman, Sportsnet's NHL insider. You also hear him on Hockey Night in Canada and the 32 Thoughts podcast. And by the way, there is more Canucks trade discussion on the 32 Thoughts podcast today as well. So after you finish listening to us, go check that out. That is Elliot Friedman again earlier today on the Jeff Merrick Show, running down where things stand in his view on the Canucks trade front. And there's a lot to dig into there, Drance. Obviously, you know, con- doubles down in a sense on the Connor Garland reporting from Saturday night, connects them, connects him to New Jersey as well. We can dig into the specifics of some of the players he mentioned there, but I just think from a general sense, as we continue to hear more reporting and learn more both from Jim Rutherford directly, but also from insiders like Elliot Friedman about the point of view that Jim Rutherford has and his priorities going into the trading deadline season you know, we talk a lot about, okay, they need to add defensemen. They need to add prospects, right? Is there are, are there different styles of players that Jim Rutherford wants to acquire? But I think more and more what's becoming clear is the number one priority is going to be flexibility and cap space, right? And beyond just, okay, hey, we need to find a right-handed defenseman to play with Quinn Hughes. I think what we're hearing from these reports is, or what we should be understanding from these reports is, First and foremost, they need cap flexibility going forward. You mentioned they just passed Columbus and Detroit in points percentage. Those are rebuilding teams with a ton of cap space, right? They're one of the they're some of the few teams in the NHL that do have that cap flexibility. And again, I think the reason you're hearing these names brought up, maybe it's stylistic, maybe it's because you're looking for that perfect piece in return, but more than anything else, I think it's about Again, getting that cap cushion that Jim Rutherford talking about, having the flexibility to do other interesting things in the future for Jim Rutherford. You can't carve out cap space necessarily. Like you can't reliably carve out cap space by moving middle class players, right? Teams teams have their own cap space, their own cap situation to monitor, and they view it. They view every dollar spent as an opportunity cost. Like that's how smart. teams operate so every dollar you commit is a dollar you can't commit elsewhere and as you look through what you need like it's about options it's about the ability to make trades to lubricate deals to take on and i don't see the canucks doing this but to take on a bad contract to get picks um you know to take on a contract for a $4 million player who you think is better for your team than the $2.7 million center who hasn't worked out here in in Jason Dickinson. On and on down the list. You can't solve problems. You don't have a reasonable course to improve without having salary cap space. And the Canucks don't have it. The Canucks don't have it. In addition to not being good enough on the ice, in addition to not having enough prospects coming, they don't have cap flexibility. So, you know, that's a good starting point. Like, that's a good starting point. You need, you need like, there's a few building blocks, basically, that result in you having the types of assets that you require to improve quickly, right? It, it's, it, think about it, think about it almost like, um, like the discipline required to exercise. You know what I mean? Yeah. Having cap flexibility is like the healthy diet. Right. Having uh, having prospects coming in the system, that's that's having your your workout routine and actually sticking to it. You know, and you're not going to you're not going to reach your fitness goals without the building blocks required to make it happen. And the Canucks don't have those. Right. It's a it's a house of cards, effectively, that's been built to prop up a team that's not good enough to make the playoffs. 
Like, that sucks. That sucks. It's a really steep climb that Rutherford's going to try and make here, and he's going to try and make it relatively quickly. You don't get there without bull moves. You don't get yep. there without moving good players. And, yeah, it, it's going to be, if you're trying to carve out meaningful cap flex, your, your way, your, your best routes forward are for sure going to be players the caliber of Miller and Garland and Besser and company as opposed to your Hamannick class of players. I mean, it's just really obvious that that's the case. Like, your best players make more money and have more market value. If you're prioritizing cap space, then you're going to have to trade someone good. It's not It's not a really complicated set of arithmetic, and I know Canucks fans are attached to a lot of these players. I know a lot of these players have played well. You have to give something to get something in, in, on the NHL trade market. Rutherford knows that. And look, with where this team's situated... I think he's right, and I think major surgery is required. So it's going to be a fascinating thing to watch him navigate, especially because I do think as a result of the run the team went on in December, there is belief around this group. Um, There's some sort of latent optimism that perhaps they can do something special because of the fact that you know they went on this run, and then they had all these COVID outbreak things, and they've still played pretty well uh, despite all of that. And maybe now that they're all healthy. And so, you know, fair enough. But they don't play for a week after Tuesday night. And they've got a pretty tough back-to-back here. Although the first game is soft against a team you have to beat because the Chicago Blackhawks are not good. And then on the other end of that, you know, you're looking at some winnable games. Like, yeah, you're looking at Toronto, but you're also looking at the Islanders and the Coyotes and some winnable games. So if you're going to make the case... As a group of players, you know, I saw Patrick Alvin just join the club in Chicago. Like, it starts now. Yeah. And there's no there's no room for error, both in terms of the playoff race and in terms of laying another Calgary type egg, right? In front of in front of a new key decision maker who's just joined the group today. Like now, now is the time. Um and there is no there is no future for this group if they don't begin to make that case and make that case in, in, you know, with indisputable conviction beginning tonight. And to your point about what's it going to take to clear cap space, right? There's a reason that these conversations are all centered around Canucks forwards because it's easy to look at their cap sheet and say, well, OEL and Tyler Myers, like those are the deals you're trying to move if you're really trying to free up cap space. But those are also contracts that are incredibly, incredibly difficult to move because of their 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 perceived value around the league and in OEL's case also because he controls the process he has a no movement clause and if you just look so let, let's take you know we're, we're getting a better sense of the kind of untouchables in the Canucks front office can, can, can I interrupt you really Go quickly ahead. just to just to zero in because you brought up OEL right yep. and and his deals last through 2027 and he's performed really well yep. exceeded all reasonable expectations he's bounced back to Maybe not his like prime twenty six year old seasons, but certainly to the level that he was at prior to last year's like twenty twenty one's down year for him, and he's added some defensive value above and beyond anything he's done to this point in his career. He's a more mature defensive player now. He has been a spectacular contributor uh, for this team and behind the scenes. I think he's his voice has carried a lot of weight. I think he's been a tremendous fit culturally too within the organization from what I understand, um, you know, with the qualification that um, with with the lack of access as a result of COVID protocols, we are pretty far removed from the room relative to our usual standard. Additionally, Garland 
if he hasn't been the best Canucks forward, because you want to give that to JT Miller, then, second he's, best. then he's second best. And there are a variety of metrics, including the, um, you know, uh, all-in-one Gar, Gar metrics, GAR metrics at, uh, at Evolving Wild that would put him number one. So for me, probably I'd say number two, but there's a lot of metrics that in fact would say number one. So the players that the Canucks acquired in the JT Mil- or in the Oliver Ekman Larson Garland swap are crushing it for Vancouver in their first season. And yet, and this comes back to the discussion of cap space, and yet, having added twelve million net, right, for years and years and years to come, right, including Oliver Ekman Larson's basically a movable deal. Like, the Canucks have significantly tied their hands while investing in a team that, at best, is a fringe playoff team and has not performed close to that level, frankly, over the course of this season. Like, has a 10% playoff odds today. So, you know, fringe playoff team, they're not really on the playoff fringe. They're, like, outside. They're on the fringe of the fringe. Yeah. And as a result, you can win a deal and lose a deal. I often talk about cap spaces, like you can lose a deal and win a deal, depending on what you do. If you get cap cap space space. back. You give up a good player, but you get the cap space to do something else. You can also win a deal and lose a deal, and that's what the Canucks did with the Oliver ekman larsen garland acquisition, where the trade has worked, both players have played very well, right? And yet, and yet, for how much it ties this team's hands and marries them to a middle-of-the-road team at best, Right. That deal is a categorical failure. Yeah, we had this unsigned text come in that says, uh, how much better would the Canucks situation be if Benning wasn't allowed to do the OEL trade? And certainly, you'd have a lot. Yeah, you would have had another year of Louis Erickson and Jay Beagle and Antoine Roussel in the bottom six, but you'd also have all They'd all be money. gone. They'd, They'd all be gone. all that money coming off the books. Well, and, and, I mean, Benning himself said, we're two years away. Like, Benning actually had the right point of view. Before it flopped, before it changed. But you just go down, you just look at this Canucks salary cap situation. Okay, who are the, outside of the untouchables, which you can say, Pedersen, Hughes, Demko, and Friedman kind of threw Horvat in there as well as a name that has not been out there, that he has not heard. That makes a ton of sense. So you remove those four players from the discussion. Who are the contracts that other teams would give you assets for and not demand that you take long-term salary back? Who are the contracts? It's JT Miller, it's Connor Garland, and it's Brock Besser. That's probably and, it. And and maybe Brock Besser. Yeah. Because of his QO Because status. of the QO, right? So, yeah, if, yeah okay, it's great to shop Tanner Pearson. Team's asking you to take salary back. Jason Dickinson, team's asking you to take salary back. Obviously, the defenseman, we talk about the, the difficulties of moving those. So, I understand that for some fans, there's this kind of shock of, holy cow, Miller and Garland, they're two, they've been our two best forwards this year. But if you start from the... The starting point of we need to create salary cap space. Again, there's only a few contracts that you can move to achieve that goal, and it starts with JT Miller, and it starts with Connor Garland. Let's also let's also just note too that we talked about Rutherford style players on the show last week, and we had a texter text in wondering what that meant for For Garland. Garland. Yep, because he's not a front line, a straight line burner. He's a uh, dipsy doodle. Artist, right? He's uh, he's carving his name on the ice in his skates with all the uh, spin moves. Which, by the way, I just want to note, I am here for. I awesome, it. I love it. Um, and then, you know, there, I do think that probably does play a bit of a role here too. Like Garland is not a classic uh, Rutherford style player, and although the Rutherford style of player is not an absolute, as we talked about when we had this discussion last week, right? We brought up Patrick Hornfist and and Nick Bonino as two notable exceptions to the, like, speed-to-burn, um, you know, mantra. The 
the the fact is is that I'd I'd bet he views Garland as the type as more of a finishing piece, like a guy you bring into a really good team to yep. give you like that extra scoring punch in your middle six, as opposed to, you know that that I mean that's a reasonable way to look at it. He's a really really good player, but for this team which needs so much work to get to the point where they're a health they're a healthy club with a chance of contending in the near term does is garland a finishing piece or is he a core piece of that project i i do think that's a reasonable discussion that a hockey operations group particularly an incoming hockey operations group inheriting this situation would have to have with an open mind and the other interesting thing about the garland situation we talked about this on friday when a texter brought his name up before the friedman reports To the extent that it is surprising, it's largely surprising because there's no time pressure like there is with JT Miller and Brock Besser, right? So if if we, you know, start to explore this, for example, Garland, it wouldn't surprise me at all if that's a draft deal, right? When more teams are able to be involved because he's not a rental piece. He's not even a short-term piece. He's a long-term piece if you're a team that's interested in acquiring You're buying the rest of his 20s. Exactly, right? So that's the kind of thing that doesn't have to happen in season. That could easily be an off-season move if it is something the Canucks want to explore. So it's a little surprising from that perspective. But again, you just look at the contracts that have that surplus value that are going to be in demand, that you don't have to take salary back to move. He's probably number two behind JT Miller on this Canucks team. And I think that is the key to understanding why his name is out there. There's lots of great text coming in on this, on other potential moves the Canucks are going to make. We will talk about that. Look ahead to the game a little bit tonight as well. It is the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650, Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance on a game day for the Vancouver Canucks. Matching up with Chicago this afternoon on the road. 4.30 puck drop, of course, as always. You can hear all your game day coverage right here. Batch and Hershey with the call. Sat and Riccio with your pregame intermission and postgame coverage. All here on Sportsnet 650. Before we get back into the discussion about where this team is headed in the future and there's a lot of feedback based on what we heard from Elliot Friedman our conversation about the potential for trades leading up to the trade deadline for the Vancouver Canucks 650 650 keep your thoughts coming in and by the way Canucks hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery being a champion takes foresight build your company to win for years to come with fuel efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers excavators and loaders from Avenue Machinery avenuemachinery.ca couple of notes Going into the game with Chicago, Yarrow Halak starts in net for the Vancouver Canucks. Thatcher Demko will back him up, presumed to get the start tomorrow in Nashville. So that will be game number nine for Halak in a Vancouver Canucks sweater. And that means one game closer to activating those bonuses, which have got so much attention over the last few weeks. And as we talk about salary cap space of this team, you understand why. We also had a question. A a subject for which... Uh, Rick Dollywall blames me. Yes, exactly. exactly. Not not incorrectly. That's not unfair, but, you know. How dare you, Jads? How dare I bring up a fact? Yeah. Um, The other note, and we had a question about this, is uh, about Tyler Myers' status. Of course, he had the hit on uh, Trevor Lewis that he was ejected for against Calgary. Does not seem that there's going to be any supplemental discipline, so he will be in the lineup for the Vancouver Canucks Uh, tonight. I wonder how much of that is because the referees got the call right. I know this is... uh, I know this is wild that it would work like this but because he was assessed the match penalty because he effectively got a A one game suspension because he effectively got a game I I feel like that probably helped protect him a fair bit well correct from following from follow-up supplement correct me if I'm wrong but I think 
the NHL Department of Player Safety has even acknowledged that reasoning in they the have, past yeah. explicitly. No, right? they have explicitly. Yeah. But I'm saying, yeah, I'm saying if he'd been just assessed a major, I wonder if it might have been a, it might have been a game. But because they got it right, I think that helped him avoid further discipline. Uh, question comes in quickly. Why go with Halak today? I get it's a back-to-back, but Demko coming off a bit of time in the All-Star break after tomorrow, why not play him twice? Again, it's because unless you absolutely have to, you're not going to play your goalie in you a back-to-back. You can't go You can't go three and four with two flights Yeah. Um, after, after six, six, seven days away from game action. You know, like Demko played five games in nine nights with, with flights between every game. And so he was going 150 miles per hour athletically, right? And then he had to stop to zero for basically a week. And then you're going to ramp him up and play him three and four with, with multiple flights? Just can't do it. Just yeah. can't do it. And and DiPietro, uh, this is an interesting one too. Remember when Spencer Martin briefly went into COVID protocol, but then came back before we would have assumed so? Read a lot into Mike DiPietro going on this trip rather than Spencer Knight. I I viewed that. I haven't asked about this yet. Uh, I will later today. But I viewed that as uh, as pretty clear evidence <laughs> that uh, that Spencer Martin was not a confirmed positive and thus would be subject to a testing regimen that DiPietro would not uh, as a result of being a recent positive. And as such, uh, you know, easier to bring the guy who doesn't have to test across right. the border as opposed to the guy who was not a confirmed positive of late. So that, that I think, explains who the Canucks' third goaltender is and, and makes a ton of sense the moment you think about it. 650-650 is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. Lots of great thoughts coming in. Let, let me scroll this, actually. I had a Let's really go. interesting conversation over the weekend, uh, senior industry contact, and they brought up to me something that I hadn't thought of in the immediate aftermath of the Patrick Alvine hire, but that I thought made a ton of sense when when it was suggested to me. And this is so. This is an outsider view on the Canucks a uh, on the Canucks GM hire, and they suggested to me that you know to them it read like a setup for the Twins that Alvine was the hire you make to build a bridge to Henrik and Daniel, right? Um, fellow Swede. Even though there's not a pre-existing relationship there, a you know guy who is not you know seen like he's known to be an extremely collaborative, kind person, right? Um, the type of person who would have the experience, especially on the amateur side, uh, but in other areas as well, to mentor mentor the twins. Not seen to be like a, a the type of candidate who would have designs on the presidency, right? Could could potentially work under Rutherford, but also potentially work under uh, a new iteration. Uh, they they said to me that in their view, that's sort of what it what it screamed to them was that the the Alvin hire was really suggest suggested that the organization was you know thinking long term and thinking about the development of the twins as sort of the next big voices in hockey operations. Wasn't a thought that had occurred to me last week, but as I talked talked through it, I thought, you know, that's a good take. That makes a lot of sense to me in a lot of ways. I just figured I'd share it here because it was a, a eyes-wide-open moment for me. I was like, yeah, that's probably a big part of the calculus. Well, the fa- one of the fascinating things about the Jim Rutherford era, and it's it's a short era so far, but it has been very, you know, packed with news. It's a and short era. With... Nothing's happened, but it's been fascinating. It's been fascinating. Yeah. It's been absolutely fascinating. And one of the really interesting things to me is we talk so much about development of the players in the organization, right? And, okay, what, what's Niels Hoaglander's ceiling? What's Vasily Podkolzin's ceiling? How much more can they get out of Quinn Hughes? And Bo Horvat and Elias Pettersson, 
one of the interesting subplots so far of Jim Rutherford is that the development of the front office is going to be fascinating mm-hmm. in the years to come. Because as you mentioned, the Sedins, who of course franchise icons joining the front office there's always going to be that kind of speculation about what their ultimate role is and we know right now they're kind of just they're doing their due diligence they're learning what suits them what might suit them going forward where their skill set is all of that right now so that makes sense but even you look at somebody like Emily Castingay you know if if Vancouver has success and if Vancouver under Jim Rutherford does good things that people around the NHL respect. I mean, how long is it before she's mentioned as a potential GM candidate around the league, right? Rachel Dory, who, when she was hired, Jim Rutherford explicitly said, hey, she's going to do analytics for us, but she's got a lot of room to grow. Ryan Johnson might see his role boosted. He's somebody who has a lot of respect around the league, who has a lot of fans around the league. So that that side of things, and, and the Sedins, you just add another layer to it. It's going to be really interesting to see you know, there's a sense of, okay, now we know what the front office looks like, maybe with one or two other hires coming, but even down the road, it's going to be really fascinating to kind of keep tabs on the development of all these, all of this talent in the Canucks front office, see where they go within the organization and see how much they end, end up in demand around the NHL as well. Well, and Rutherford's placed a lot of GMs and AGMs over the years. So, um, you know, good mark, good mark of a good manager is how their people do, right? And, and where their people go on to. Uh, Rutherford passes that test with flying colors. Uh, we'll see what's next for this Canucks front office, but I think it starts with, right? You don't place people without cups. You don't place people without a lot of winning. And so, you know, the the first step is getting this organization back on track. And, you know, as much as people wanted to look at that December run and think this was the new level under Boudreaux, as much as there has been a material change in the club's five-on-five fortunes, um, their overall sturdiness as a club, I think, uh, and as hopeful as you can be for the future, considering all of those sort of underlying facts, there's a lot of distance to travel, a lot of work to be done, and it's going to be very interesting to see how long he waits to begin putting his stamp on the roster and it does feel like that's we're in that i i feel like we're standing at the top of the ski hill right and we're just kind of waiting to go down it or 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 the roller coaster where it's like ticking up slowly yeah yeah and and you don't know exactly what it's going to be when you go over the hill but something is going to happen you know you're going to put your hands up and and yell about it (laughs) because that's that's the canucks fan default that's exactly right and the canucks media i don't want to i don't want to say just the fans that's my default reaction and we we played you the elliot friedman clip from the jeff merrick show earlier today (laughs) talking about again connor garland and hey basically every forward other than Horvat and Pedersen their name is out there he's talking to teams about it when when Connor Garland's name came up on the weekend I saw this on Twitter and now in our 650 650 Dunbar Lumber text line you know you hear the name and as you said he's been their second best forward this year he's young he's 25 he's still right in his prime and he's on a very reasonable contract a contract that you can expect him to outplay right and we got a lot of text along these lines uh, in our 650-650 text message inbox, right? Garrison texts in. Do you guys think trading Garland is actually a good idea? He's youngish and on a contract that he will outplay. Another one unsigned. With Garland still locked up for years at a reasonable rate and producing at a nice level, why trade him now unless the window of competition is several years down the road, which in that case, it wouldn't be a quick one step back and two steps forward. And I think it is fair, as, as Canucks fans and the market as a whole tries to kind of wrap their head around what might be coming for the team from Jim Rutherford. I do think the question of, okay, what is the realistic window of contention for this team? When does Jim Rutherford see that window 
opening up. We know, you know, he signed a three-year deal, so two more years after this one. Obviously, there's absolutely a chance that that could be extended and he could be here for longer than that. So I think there was initially some kind of expectation that, okay, he's going to try to make this team legitimately competitive within the timeline of that first contract, within the timeline of that first deal. And I think if you are I still looking... I think that's reasonable. That's, I think that's still what they're thinking. And I think if you are definitely looking, you know, if you have 2023, 2024 circled on your, you know, big calendar as, okay, that's the year we're going to try to compete for a cup, then there is a strong argument for retaining Connor Garland because of his age, because of his contract status. If that's more of the beginning of a window, right, the beginning of a longer window, then I think you start to understand the logic of trading Connor Garland because, again, it comes back to cap space and it comes back to assets as well. It's tempting. Okay, you hear him in connection to New Jersey. Hey, can they get Ty Smith? And can Ty, can Ty Smith be the backbone of the of the defense along with Quinn Hughes for five, ten years to come for this team? But I still think it's more just about acquiring assets however they can, whether it's cap space, picks, prospects, young players, whatever it is, whether or not those specific picks and prospects end up being key parts on a Stanley Cup winning team for the Canucks, at least you have the assets that you can use to do other things. It's weaponry. It's, it's weaponry. Not, it's not about it's not about necessarily finding prospects who are going to be core pieces for the next Canucks Cup team. It's about finding your Tyler Madden, right? And Tyler Madden, I'm not saying he's like a he, I don't think he's played for the Kings this year. I don't think he's been like a killer in the AHL, but he was a core piece. He was a third-round pick who by the time he was dealt was no longer a third-round pick despite how many Canucks fans wanted to make it seem like the Canucks had paid nothing for Tyler Toffoli. He was a Hobie Baker candidate, right? Like he was a top college prospect who they were able to sell to the Kings as part of a package that landed them a really, really good player, right? Um, That's value, right? There's value in weaponry. Um, You're going to see a lot of that play out, by the way, over the course of this deadline. Like there's a lot of teams that have prospects, maybe they're picked in the third round maybe they're second rounders you know maybe it's a guy like Jack Drury from the Hurricanes or or a guy like a um, Matthew Nyes who's going to be in the Olympics for the Maple Leafs or you know a guy like an Owen Tippett or you know what the Florida Panthers did with Devin Levy Devin Levy was a seventh round pick by the time they traded him he was the best goalie prospect in hockey and he lands Sam Reinhart right draft picks are a vehicle for value right And then cap space, similarly, is a vehicle for value. And it's in these fundamental ways, right? It's in the it's the building block areas that the Canucks need to strengthen within the organization if they're going to move the team itself forward. So if you have to sacrifice actual on ice value right now to build up your like peripheral determinants of success. That's what you have to go do. Yeah. And again, it's it's not just about... Again, you look at the construction of this team and you think, wow, they desperately need help on the blue line. They need that right-handed defenseman who can pair oh, with that, Quinn Hughes. And that's, and that's you want to you you do the timeline math? How long is it going to take for you to rebuild this blue line? Yeah. That's the question you have to ask yourself because that's this team's fundamental issue. Yeah. I, I believe that. I mean, I know their defensive play hasn't been an issue, but their offensive play has. I just don't think they can transition the puck well enough or uh, dynamically enough. Now, Rutherford teams don't always tend to. Do that. Don't always tend to. um, But the combination of forwards that are east-south, or east-west, right? 
but they don't you know they don't have the personnel to play that punt and hunt as effectively as they need to they don't have the defenders to connect the play to a bunch of forwards that excel moving east west and playing a puck possession game none of it fits and i think you you're effectively with a roster like that choosing are we going to get are we going to surrender a million quality chances against every game like we did the last two years going into the season, or are we going to generate nothing like we've done this year? You can't do both without a blue line that's a lot better than what the Canucks have. And it's tempting to say, well, therefore they need that. And we, you know, we have a text come in. Sean from Waterloo says the only Garland move I can see making sense would be for another player at his caliber who plays a Rutherford style and is the same age or younger, just a hockey trade adjusting for playing style. And look, that's certainly possible, right? If there's a team out there that gives you that, that defenseman on the blue line, who you think is the perfect fit for your style. You, you can't be reallocating cap space back to your blue line, though. If you're getting yeah. a defenseman, they have to be an ELC guy. Like, you you have 30, 36% of your cap space committed to your blue line. You can't move cap space from up front back. You need to be moving cap space out of your back end into your forward group. Like, if you're going to make a hockey trade that's salary in, salary out, it's got to be one of your blue liners, not one for of a your... Forward. For a forward, not yeah. the other way around. If you're moving Garland, I mean, ideally you get a you get a cheap defenseman, but you got to be the only way to win a Garland trade is to get like a good young player or like a couple of good assets, and and um and the cap space. Yes. Like that's the key. That's the key to winning these deals. It, it, they might even lose the deals, but you can win if you give yourself the flexibility and build up that like wall of team value that you need to make moves and actually team build this team's just like they've built they've built an empty calorie lineup like how many times have i compared this group to doritos and and other things over the course of the <laughs> i don't i don't have the tally in front of me no, but, but you, i know your point you, you, like i'm just i'm talking about a creaky edifice on the ice right with very little structural integrity in terms of the types of things you need to really move an organization forward and those things are things like Meaningful futures, meaningful tradable assets, salary cap flexibility, uh, a, a healthy prospect system. This team doesn't have like the four walls, and they've been and and that's as a result of trying to build or trying to take a million shortcuts over the years to build up you know their their on ice sort of product, and the on ice product that they've built in the meantime isn't good either. So I understand people struggling to wrap their head around building for the future. Considering how this team, especially considering how this team performed in December, considering the fact that we're only two years removed from thinking that the rebuild was over and that this team had arrived. Um, I actually noticed that while reading a bunch of Cincinnati Bengals content. I was like, this scene sounds a lot like some of the content that I wrote during the 2020 playoffs, where it's like, the Canucks time isn't now, but this is useful experience for right. them, you know, as they're emerging as one of the league's most dangerous teams for the future, like, you know. That that tomorrow was not promised, as it turned out. It's hard. I think fans have had this sense of whiplash as a result with how 2021 has gone, with how this season has gone. Um, you know, I think it was, like, comfortable to be like, well, they were just poorly coached. But But it's so much more than that. And Rutherford's key task is to get this organization building the right way. And that requires the foundation to be an awful lot stronger than what the Canucks have done because while ignoring that foundation, while while borrowing from it to build their their hockey team, their on-ice product, the team they've constructed is also not very good. So they've accomplished neither the future nor the past in the in the, in the last couple of years, 
or the last longer than that, the last eight years, Rutherford now has to chart a, a really clean direction. And if that involves, you know, the things that he's said it involves, young players, draft picks, cap space, well, that's going to require that's going to require taking a step back on the ice. And it does feel like, again, as more reporting comes out and we hear more and more about what their plans are, what they're talking about, that moves that we see happen. And again, it rem- look, there's, it's entirely possible that none of these big, high-profile names that we're talking about, JT Miller, Connor Garland, Brock Besser, that none of them get moved totally. by the trade deadline. Of course that's a possibility. But it does feel more and more that if we do see moves of that magnitude, it's going to be much more about flexibility and asset accumulation than it is identifying a specific player that oh hey that fits my style my vision for the team and that's somebody who I think is going to complement this team for years to come it's going to be about building the ability later down the road to go out and get those players with cap space with picks with prospects whatever the case may be I think that's the theme or at least that's what I'm expecting more than oh hey we really love this defenseman and we think he's going to be the perfect partner with Quinn Hughes uh, unsigned text says is it not an option to buy out untradeables like Poolman to gain cap space that is critical to future success owners are willing to spend so why not there look buyouts certainly of specific players could be an option for this team the problem is you can't it's not as simple as just buying your way out of cap problems because that money, yes, less of it, but spread out over a longer term stays on your books. And then when you maybe are hoping to be truly competitive, you still have all of this dead money on your salary cap sheet. And I think probably, you know, when Jim Rutherford talks about creating a cap cushion, he's also hoping to not have dead money on the salary cap sheet with the Canucks, which the Canucks have had for a long time on their books. And if you start buying out players, you create more dead money. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean that you're not going to explore a buyout, but it's, it's, I don't think it's as simple as, Hey, we're in uh, salary cap trouble. So we better get, get some buyouts because it just creates more problems for you down the road as well. Uh, one Jason the Killer goalie texts in, one thing that the Canucks desperately need is a lot more overall team speed. They lose so many races for loose pucks, get outchanced with odd man rushes significantly almost every game. Yep. Sure. But again, is it going to be about, hey, we need to trade Connor Garland for someone faster? Or is it, we're going to trade Connor Garland or whoever to create the space so that in the future, we can go out and identify that team speed or or, how, or both? Right, maybe you can find the young forward who is faster, not as good at least at the moment, right? But also is younger and more affordable and has years of team control on them, right? I mean, that's the t- those are the types of moves you got to look for. And and again, I come back to the Seth Jones template always, right? Where the Columbus Blue Jackets move him, right, and then bring in Bockvist in return, but also use the cap space to sign Jake Bean to a deal Carolina wouldn't give him. And then you end up with like Bean and Bockvist plus the assets you got back for Seth Jones, Cole Sillinger, and the and that first that Chicago unwisely dealt them. And what you end up with is, are Jake Bean and Bockvist as good as Seth Jones if you need to win a game tomorrow? No, they're not. But is Columbus just about where you'd expect them to have been with Seth Jones in their lineup anyway, standings-wise this season? You know, yep. roughly roughly equivalent to the Canucks in terms of their performance through half the year. Yeah, they are. They didn't really take that much of a step back. They just netted Cole Sillinger, Bockvist, and an additional first round pick, 
while taking a savvy step back. If you make the right types of moves, you don't have to you don't have to fall back as far as you think you do because this isn't an efficient league in terms of talent evaluation and the value of flexibility is so high, so high, especially in the flat cap era. I think that's also where talk of, you know, College free agents, European free agents plays a role as well. Can you add to your team speed, to your identity that you're trying to craft around the margins while also making some of those bigger magnitude moves elsewhere? Just the last thing is you don't bring in, like you don't bring in a, someone like Jim Rutherford if you don't trust him to find better players than you have, right? Um, you don't bring in a coach like Bruce Boudreaux, right? What, what's funny is fans are very, I, f- I feel like fans are very reluctant to wrap their head around the idea of trading some of Vancouver's good players, but... Part of the logic of having Boudreaux, too, is that he's going to get more out of guys. Like, if you believe in Boudreaux, you have to believe, too, that the club can find other guys, uh, especially with Rutherford in charge, capable of fitting into that system, and then Boudreaux can get the most out of them. I mean, that's if you bring in the best people, you bring it in to change things up. You don't bring it in because, you know... Just, just for the sake of changing the culture and then trusting the vision that was inherited. You, you, this is what they're here to do, and I'd expect them to get to work in you know at some at some point next month in the month of February. I'd expect we are talking about the stamp that Rutherford has begun to put on Vancouver's on ice product. That'll do it for us today. We will be back tomorrow to break down the game against Chicago, preview the game against Nashville. Make sure you subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast, Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a five-star rating and review as well. It is game day. More game day coverage coming up on the People's Show with Bick Nazar and Randy Janda. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.